Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. According to the Salt Lake Tribune, Brigham Young University students who are victims of sex crimes say they are investigated by the school and sometimes disciplined after reporting their abuse, a consequence that critics say silences victims and emboldens offenders. Several thousand people have signed an online petition urging BYU not to investigate rape victims for honor code violations. A protest is planned at BYU today in support of that petition. BYU says it is studying the connection between its Title IX office, which investigates sexual assaults, and its Honor Code office. We're going to talk about this on Access Utah today, and our guests will include Carrie Jenkins, spokesperson for Brigham Young University, Alana Kindness, executive director of the Utah Coalition Against Sexual Assault, and Brenda Tracy, a sexual violence prevention consultant at Oregon State University. We want to know what you think as well. You can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can call us toll-free 1-800-826-1495. Right now I'm speaking with Alana Kynos, Executive Director of Utah Coalition Against uh, Sexual Assault. Alana, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we want to talk about the situation at uh, Brigham Young University. Um, I, I, just generally, what uh, what are your main concerns here? The, the the too close proximity, perhaps, between Title IX office and the Honor Code office, with a chilling effect on reporting. What uh, what are you hearing? Yeah, that's pretty much it. On the um, that their information sharing between those two offices is having a deterrent effect uh, against victims of sexual assault reporting those sexual assaults to the appropriate personnel on campus. Um, and also, my other concern is that perpetrators of sexual violence who are aware of that deterrent effect will take advantage of it and will often uh, coerce their victims into engaging in behavior that would be in violation of the honor code in order to further deter them from reporting the assault. Oh, that's that's disturbing, isn't it? That's kind of a yeah. planned kind of a planned thing. UIU has come out with a statement expressing that they understand the concerns, um, that they care deeply about the safety of their students, and they have decided to study these issues, including potential structural changes within the university, um, and and the process for determining whether and how information is used, uh, as well as the relationship between the Title IX office and the Honor Code office, and I think that's really significant. Um, the other piece to this is there are there are many ways to configure um, the process of responding to allegations of sexual assault on campus, and uh, the White House has been giving us fantastic government or fantastic guidance for years on how to structure Title IX policies and procedures. There's a lot of really good guidance. There's guidance from other colleges and universities who, most of whom have their own code of conduct, you know, policies as well. So this isn't really a new question. It's a new question for this university in terms of actually looking critically at the impact that their current policy is having on victims of sexual violence and on continual safety on campus if perpetrators of sexual violence aren't being identified and held accountable. I guess that's another piece of this. Uh, do, you, do you think uh, 
the, the Anacote piece of this, uh, potential chilling effect on reporting, that's, uh, I guess that's favoring perpetrators who get off without without punishment? Is that, is, Absolutely. Think it's not the honor code in and of itself, but it's the practice of then sharing once, it, once a student makes a report that they've been a victim of a, a sexually violent offense, sharing that information outside of the investigation then with the honor code. That's what really has the chilling effect. Um, the honor code office in and of itself isn't isn't the problem, but you're right. It's the relationship between the honor code office and the offices that are charged with investigating um, and responding to sexual assaults on campus. So in your view, what what structurally uh, uh, should happen? Greater separation between the offices, uh, training of Title IX and honor code uh, offices? What what should happen? Absolutely. They should have, quite frankly, shouldn't have anything to do with each other. I can see why if a student is found um, responsible for committing a sexual assault on campus, then that information may be relevant to the Honor Code office. Um, But to just blanketly share information on both victim and offender or, you know, victim and suspect in a case that's just been reported doesn't make much sense. Um, So the Honor Code uh, process should be entirely separate from the reporting of violations of sexual assault. The other piece um, to keep clear is that Title IX is really the civil rights statute that governs the the university's responsibility to keep students safe. So Title IX is what governs the, the college and university's response to the report of a sexual assault. Um, and that there are higher authorities, the Office for Civil Rights, um, that can investigate the school if they are failing, if they are putting students at further jeopardy um, in the way they're handling these cases. So it's up to the university to determine how they're going to handle these investigations and proceed from there. But if it's demonstrated that the way they're handling the investigation puts students at further risk of harm, then that's a place where the Office for Civil Rights could come in and do an investigation. My understanding is that some colleges that have an honor code have an amnesty clause with with regard to reporting of sexual assault. Would would you suggest such a thing for BYU? Absolutely. I think that's a really important measure. Um, And this is a practice that's used not just in colleges and universities, but it's used in local law enforcement as well when witnesses of crime, um, when, when a witness of a crime or a victim of crime may be engaged in behavior that um, they might be held responsible for, but if they don't report it, then a larger crime or a more violent crime goes unreported. Those are the kinds of situations where we determine what's in the best interest of the public safety, right? And so we will say, you know, if you're engaged in drug use and someone next to you is overdosing, we want you to call 911. We don't want you to be afraid to call 911 because you're going to be afraid of being arrested. The person's life that's at stake is the most important thing. So there's precedent for that type of um, immunity in all sorts of law enforcement and public safety settings. I want to pull back just a bit from uh, the, the specific instance at, uh, instances at BYU uh, to, to college campuses in general. Um, 
and have you talk a little bit about what perhaps might be barriers to to reporting. I'm not sure what the statistics are of the percentage of sexual assaults that are reported, but I understand it's not 100%. Oh, no, it's very far from it. Yeah, the majority of sexual assaults that occur are not reported to law enforcement. Across the country, it's really only about 1 in 10 sexual assaults that do get reported to law enforcement. So we already know there are plenty of barriers. Those include shame and stigma, fear of not being believed, um, fear of being blamed. Uh, All of those things are issues that we're working on constantly within our communities. We have um, an international campaign called Start by Believing that gives communities and families Um, and friends of individuals who have been assaulted guidance on how to respond to someone who discloses that they've been sexually assaulted so that we can have a more supportive response all the way around. Um, And then another barrier has been reluctancy on behalf of some of our criminal justice systems to really invest the time and the energy um, into fully pursuing these cases. We are seeing a, a starting to see a shift in that nationally um, and a little bit more investment, but it's come with a lot of hard work and a lot of advocacy. I, I believe April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. It is. And so, you know, appropriate we're talking about this. Unfortunate that this, uh, you know, this come forward to Brigham Young University, but perhaps can move toward a, a better solution there. Um, I wonder what you would you would say about sexual assault in general. It's It's... it's I think it's distressing that it, I don't know, the problem doesn't seem to be abating. You are absolutely correct. The problem has not been abating, and I think that's in large part because we've been looking at, um, our attention has been misdirected in terms of how we're trying to reduce it. Um, For too long, the ways to prevent sexual violence have really focused on the behavior of potential victims. Well, they shouldn't be drinking, or they shouldn't be going out late at night, or they shouldn't be wearing those clothes, rather than focusing on the behavior of the perpetrators who are specifically targeting individuals who are vulnerable, individuals who may be afraid to come forward, individuals who are known to them and are in a position of trust and who they should be able to trust. So that's where the real shift needs to happen. Um, our, Our systems need to respond in terms of holding offenders more accountable. We need to shift our ideas about who commits sexually violent crimes. We don't often imagine that it is the college student on campus that's the student body president that is committing these crimes, but very often and unfortunately in many cases it is. And so I think we just need to broaden our lens and look at the information that we have about who really does commit these crimes um, and start holding them accountable. And then we need to look at our the elements of our, our societal um, belief systems and, and practices that allow harassing behavior to continue, that don't enforce things like civil rights laws, like Title IX that says, you know, harassment on the basis of uh, Gender is prohibited on college campuses and actually in schools from K through 12 as well. So we need to start very, very early on letting kids know what are the standards and and what are the expectations of how we treat each other and how we interact with each other. Finally, uh, I'm curious about culture 
and how that interacts with either, you know, the likely likelihood of sexual assault or reporting of sexual assault. You know, Utah has a specific culture. Brigham Young University has a has a certain culture. Does, does, is that a factor? And, and, and how does that enter in? Absolutely. Um, globally, we find that, well, we find that um, college, the, during college, um, the college years is when students are, are more vulnerable at heightened risk for, for sexual violence. Um, and then in terms of Utah and the world, we find in communities where there is very rigid um, adherence to specific gender roles, so really strong perceptions about how females should be behaving versus how males should be behaving. When there's consequences for not fitting into those stereotypes, that's been shown to be correlated with higher incidence of um, sexual assault. And then issues of unstable economy, that can sometimes contribute. So there are a number of different cultural factors that we need to be looking at. And then any kind of practice that, um, that leads to discrimination uh, against one group by another group is a, is a practice that leads to more vulnerability within that population. So we tend to look at this as very much a civil rights issue and a human rights issue and making sure that we're guaranteeing that every individual's rights are protected because if we're not protecting everyone's rights, then all of us are at increased risk. Okay, thank you very much. Alana Kindness is Executive Director of Utah Coalition Against Sexual Assault. Appreciate that. No problem. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And you are listening to Utah Public Radio. It's Access Utah, and we're talking about sexual assault, uh, specifically based on the, the uh, what's going on at Brigham Young University. Uh, some students who are victims of sex crimes say they have been investigated by the school and sometimes disciplined after reporting their abuse. Consequently, critics say silences victims and emboldens offenders. Several thousand people have signed an online petition urging BYU not to investigate rape victims for honor code violations. A protest is planned at BYU today in support of that petition. BYU says it's studying the connection between its Title IX office, which investigates sexual assaults, and its honor code office. And uh, we have the phone line open for your comments at 1-800-826-1495. You can also email us to upraxcess at gmail.com. A little bit later on, we're going to be talking with or hear a conversation that we recorded yesterday with Carrie Jenkins, spokesperson for Brigham Young University. Right now, we bring in Brenda Tracy, sexual violence prevention consultant at Oregon State University. Brenda Tracy, welcome back to Access Utah. Thank you for having me. So we uh, had you on a program uh, uh, dealing with uh, sexual assault awareness a few months ago. For po- people who didn't uh, make that program, uh, Tell us your story in in brief, if you would. Sure. I'll I'll try to be as brief as possible. Um, In 1998, I went to a friend's apartment, and while I was there, um, it was in uh, Corvallis, Oregon, I was drugged, and I was gang-raped by four men. Two of those men were football players at Oregon State University. Um, Right after the attack, I reported to the police. I got a rape kit done, and I reported to the school. Uh, at Oregon State University to a sexual assault counselor. And unfortunately, the outcome of my case was that I was uh, lied to by the DA. I was told I did not have a good case. Um, I found out years later that all four men had confessed um, on audio tape to the attack. 
Uh, my rape kit was not tested, and it was destroyed before the statute of limitations was up. And the university's response was to give the men 25 hours community service and a one-game suspension uh, from the uh, football season. So yeah. uh, not a good outcome. Yeah, yeah it's just breathtaking. Um now, I guess people could say, well, that, that was several years ago. Would, you know, would that happen today? What, what's the climate like today, do you think, on, on, on an average college campus? Yeah, and, you know, I hear that a lot. I hear uh, people say, you know, Brenda, that happened a long time ago. Things are different now. And unfortunately, things really are not that different. If you really dig into the issue, unfortunately, my case can happen again today, and it does happen. And that is why I am so active um, in my ad- advocacy work and activism, helping to change laws, working with Oregon State University, because it's unfortunate that we really haven't made that much progress since 1998. And I don't know that, I think, as a general society, we think that these things can't happen um, because they sound so unreal, um, but they do happen. And we have to recognize that we, we need to do better. We, ha- we have to make more change. Uh, so I think you were listening in the conversation um, with Alana Kindness there. Uh, just in general, uh, anything that uh, stood out that you'd like to emphasize? Yeah, um, I agreed with pretty much every single thing she said. I think she was right on. Um, one of the things that I wanted to touch on was the amnesty policy. Um, I think it's important that every single school um, adopt an amnesty policy because what's happening is Especially with BYU, if we have if we have victims coming forward in good faith to report a crime to the school, um, not only are these victims possibly wanting justice for themselves, but in my case, I really just wanted to make sure that no one else went through what I went through. I wanted to make sure the school knew what had happened to me so that no one else would be harmed. And I hear that from victim after victim. I just want, I don't... Maybe I don't want to go through the criminal process. Maybe I don't want to go through the adjudication process on the university. But I want to make sure this doesn't happen to anyone else. And when we don't have amnesty and we come forward in good faith and we're punished for it, um, what we're doing is we're blaming the victim. We are further shaming them and we're pushing them into into silence. And we're basically saying, it's your fault you got raped and don't come forward because if you do, there will be consequences for reporting a crime. And that is the worst-case scenario. Um, It's not going to help anything. Like you said, it's going to protect the perpetrators on campuses. It's going to um, lessen reporting, which is already terribly low. I think maybe 18% of victims report on campus, if that. Um, So amnesty is important. And I'd like people to know, too, that there's a bill actually going through the federal government right now. It's called CASA, Campus Accountability Safety Act, and it actually has an amnesty policy in there that if someone comes forward in good faith to report a crime, that you cannot use, you know, if they were drinking at the time and they're underage, you cannot use that against them. So I would encourage people to support this bill, write your congressmen, your legislators, and let them know you want this bill to pass through so that we can make sure that all universities have an amnesty policy for victims. Before we go to break, I wonder if you could uh, clear up. I think some people are confused about the Title IX offices. When we think of Title IX, often we think of sports and equal sports for for, for women. Title IX uh, has been mandated, I think, by by federal law to to receive 
uh, sexual assault reporting? Is that on campus? Is that maybe clear that up for us? Yeah, it's not just about sports. It's basically about making sure that all students on campus are are treated fairly and equally, and that you are free from an environment um, of sexual harassment, sexual violence. Like you have the right to be on a campus and be safe, and not be the victim of sexual harassment, stalking, domestic violence, sexual assault, and rape. Um, which is really just a human right, um, and this office is supposed to make sure that this is enforced on our campuses. Uh, now, in terms of reporting, that's that can get a little confusing as well. Uh, if you're on a college campus, we hear about Title IX office. Uh, should the young woman go to the local law enforcement and Title IX, or, or one or the other, or what? Uh, what's best to do? You know, I think that that's really up to the victim, and I think that. It's whatever, it's whatever they need to um, find the healing and the justice that they want. Some victims want to only adjudicate at the university level. Some students uh, want to go and report to the police. Um, the unfortunate problem is that we don't see a lot of good outcomes from universities or from our law enforcement. So it's... For me as a consultant and as, as, as an advocate and a survivor, it's hard for me to talk to victims and say, yeah, I think you should go to the university, I think you should report, but this is possibly what could happen. It's possible that they could use the honor code against you. It's possible that they won't do anything. It's possible that you will be the one asked to leave school or you know, take a break while your perpetrator stays on campus. Um, it's possible that if you go to the police and have a rape kit done, it may not be tested. It could just sit on a shelf um, or be destroyed. Um, these are all very difficult situations, but I think it's important that it's up to the victim and what they want to do. We have to empower them to have some control over their own situation, uh, but we also need to make sure that they're advised of, of the good and bad and all the possibilities that could happen so they have it. Uh, they can make an informed decision about what they want to do. But it's really up to the victim. So I've learned a bit about this, doing some programs on, uh, you know, sexual assault on campus. Uh, it's It could be very eye-opening. I, there's, in fact, in the previous program a few months ago, we talked about the red zone. Which is, yes. Tell me about the red zone. Yeah, so the red zone happens at the beginning of the school year, Um what happens is we have a lot of freshmen coming into uh, the university. It's, it's, it's normally the freshman class um, that ends up, um, we see the highest incidence of rape during the red zone in the beginning of school when school first starts. Um, and I, I think that it's a, it's a combination of, of uh, freedom, naivete, um, you know, partying, <laughs> There's just a lot of things that go on, and perpetrators, unfortunately, um, know they can kind of hone in on who the victims are. Um, and this happens to be the point of time in school where they uh, act out the most, and we see the highest incidence of rape. We also see a correlation of a lot of assault going on around um, sports activities. I think there's a college study that came out that said there's a spike an incidence of sexual assault around football games um, and different sporting events also. And what's, uh, there's a startling percentage, I can't remember it, you probably know it, uh, of, of young women on campus who will be sexually assaulted during their college experience. 
Yeah, yeah. It's actually uh, one in four or one in five studies show different. Uh, one in four or one in five women on campus will be assaulted during their time in college, um, and one in 16 men will also be assaulted during their time in college. So it's it's rampant. And I, I would think that uh, probably the male statistic is probably actually even worse. We just don't see, I mean, reporting by males is like kind of infinitesimal, so I don't think we have a good handle on what that is, but it's probably worse statistic. But um, it's kind of become, unfortunately, part of the college experience, which I think is disgusting and awful, and we have to change that. There's no reason that sexual assault should be part of the college experience. Yeah, it's just out, outrageous. It's yeah, it's something that I guess that begin with awareness, and I'd, I'll ask you as we go along uh, how you know what what we can do. Uh, we'll take a break when we come back more with Brenda Tracy, uh, who is a sexual violence prevention consultant at Oregon State University. There are some good things going on. Oregon State University has become a good example. Um, one of the things they did was was hire Miss Tracy. Uh, we'll talk more about the situation at Brigham Young University as well, and we'll hear from uh, a spokesperson for Brigham Young University when we come back. More following the break. Welcome to Science by the Slice. To address the frightening public health concerns of increasingly frequent drug-resistant pathogens, USU Uinta Basin biology professor Leanna Etchberger and her students are on the hunt for new antibiotics. The students collect soil samples and antibiotic-producing microbes in the vernal area and upload their findings to a central database of samples from around the world. Their efforts contribute to a global effort to combat disease. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu slash science. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. According to the Salt Lake Tribune, Brigham Young University students who are victims of sex crimes say they are investigated by the school and sometimes disciplined for honor code violations after reporting their abuse, a consequence that critics say silences victims and emboldens offenders. Several thousand people have signed an online petition urging BYU not to investigate rape victims for honor code violations, essentially instituting an amnesty uh, provision. A uh, protest is planned at BYU today in support of that petition. BYU says it is studying the connection between its Title IX office, which investigates sexual assaults, and its honor code office. And uh, we are shortly going to hear from a spokesperson for Brigham Young University, Carrie Jenkins. More now with Brenda Tracy, who is a sexual violence prevention consultant at Oregon State University. Uh, just to sort of uh, underline the potential problem between a connection or a reporting from Title IX over to Honor Code. I just wanted to read this passage from Salt Lake Tribune reporting. They talked to a Madeline McDonald. Um, Brigham Young University student. She said she made a Title IX sexual assault report in 2014. She said a blind date took her to a mountain in Orem, forced her clothes off, pinned her into the cab of his pickup, and groped her while she told him to stop. She says, I wasn't drunk. I'd never had previous consensual sex with this guy. There were no drugs involved. He wasn't in my apartment at all. 
McDonald said she turned to the Women's Services and Resources Offices, where staff instructed her to file a complaint with Title IX. And during the investigation, she said the coordinator of Title IX told her that the case was being forwarded to the Honor Code office. And uh, here's what McDonald said. She was telling me, the coordinator was, that at BYU, people falsely report rapes because the Honor Code office is so strict on premarital sex, and people report rapes so they won't get investigated. Uh, so there's one potential, you know, you know, that's an attitude, at least uh, McDonald says, of this uh, Title IX officer, um, w- which is a uh, reason why at least this BYU official was saying they, they have this uh, connection in place. Uh, I don't know what you think about that, Brenda Tracy. It's, it seemed seem to have a chilling effect on reporting. Yeah, it just it just sounds like kind of our typical victim blaming. Um, we see that a lot. We see um, when we have uh, younger people who report uh, sexual assault, it's, you know, they're lying because they don't want their parents to find out they're sexually active. Um, a woman has sex and then regrets it the next morning, so then she's saying it's rape. Um it's just another way to discredit the victim and to, I guess, have a reason of why rape doesn't happen. Because for some reason, we just don't want to accept that this happens. And so we find all of these crazy explanations of why it doesn't. Um, and every once in a while, when you have, you know, one person who actually did lie about something, then all of a sudden it discredits every single victim that ever was even though false reporting is, is really just like 2 to 5%. Uh, it, it, so we heard in an interview with, uh, with Alana Kaina, she mentioned, you know, as you just said, we don't, I guess we want to think of, of rape, if it happens at all, as, as kind of a dark alley thing. Um, but, but it's, and we don't right. want to, th- certainly don't want to think of it as student body president, or, or uh, I guess in the case of BYU, we, we don't like to think that, uh, the, I guess some people don't like to think that rape happens there. No, no, we don't, we don't want to, we don't want to think about that. And I know that even just with my case, you know, people don't want to think that, you know, rape happens. They don't want to think that gang rape happens. They don't want to think that, you know, the star football player, or like you said, the student body president would do something like this. Um, And that's how we, we support perpetrators to continue to do what they do. Um, I think that people like to think like, you know, it was an accident or it was, you know, drunken sex or, we have all these excuses when in reality, perpetrators on campus normally have about six to eight victims, which to me says that this is very purposeful, this is intentful, and these perpetrators understand that if I come across as a great guy, um, I, you know what I mean? People aren't going to believe that I could do something like that. This is all very purposeful, um, and they're predators, and we have to start realizing that these people are predators, and we have to treat them that way, and we have to know that they know what they're doing. They know what victims they're choosing. They they know what the uh, they know what the victim blaming is. They know what society buys into, um, and, we, and we have to stop. We have to stop buying into it. We have to start looking at this for what it really is. And these are perpetrators, and they are perpetrating serious crimes on our campuses and we're not protecting victims and we have to we have to do better let's hear now from a spokesperson for brigham young university um my producer jessica sonderger reached uh, her last night Uh, here is what carrie jenkins had to say my name is carrie jenkins I am the assistant to the president for university communications at Brigham Young University. 
We are listening to the concerns that have been expressed about the reporting of sexual assault at the university, and we have decided to conduct a study under the direction of President Worthen. The safety and well-being of our students is always our first priority, and that is certainly the case here. This discussion is not unique to BYU. It's not just unique to a private university or a faith-based institution. This is something that universities across the country who have a Title IX office and what may be termed as a conduct office. It's something that the universities are looking at as they look at the issues that are presented here. The study has already begun. Discussions are already in place. We have not set an exact timeline. For one thing, we are at the end of our semester, our winter semester, and many of our students will be leaving. We do feel that this might be something that's important to involve our students in, and so we may look at carrying this into the fall semester of next year. But again, a timeline has not been set. We'll really look at what time is needed to do the very best study that we can. Some of the areas that we're specifically looking at, structural changes within the university, the process of determining whether and how information is used, and then the relationship between the Title IX office and the Honor Code office here at BYU. We are concerned that there may be a perception that would dissuade victims of sexual assault from coming to the Title IX office. That's certainly a concern to us. I can tell you that the safety and well-being of our students is of utmost, utmost concern to us. That is the primary concern here. And then further add that a victim of sexual assault would never be referred to the Honor Code Office for being a victim of sexual assault. We certainly want to be sensitive to those who are victims of sexual violence and be understanding of their situation, of the vulnerability that they may feel. And so as a university, that is our first commitment, and we need to be sensitive to any of the situation and circumstances that they may be facing. Title IX is there to protect our students, to provide a safe environment for our students. BYU has a zero tolerance for sexual violence, and certainly we work to the best of our ability to provide our students with a safe environment here at the university. And having the ability to take disciplinary action when a sexual violence occurs is very helpful to any university, not just to BYU. We have been asked why we have not responded to some of the individual cases that have been brought up in the media, and the reason being is that the university simply cannot. Because of FERPA, which is a federal guideline, we cannot disclose information about a student, nor their situation, nor their record. We just simply cannot. That is Carrie Jenkins, spokesperson for Brigham Young University. We reached her last night. We're talking with Brenda Tracy, sexual violence prevention consultant at Oregon State University. Brenda Tracy, your your general reaction to what Carrie Jenkins said, and then uh, I'll ask you what you think uh, BYU should do. Oh, (laughs) Um, that statement is so uh, frustrating and disheartening uh, for me to listen to. There's so many things that I'm bothered by. Unfortunately, you know, I think that 
this idea of, you know, we take this very seriously. Um, we hear many universities say that, and then the idea that they're going to do a study um, does not speak to me that they are um, really worried about, you know, taking this on right away, um, that there doesn't seem to be any urgency if we're just doing a study that has no timeline on it, which I think is a huge disservice to the students on campus and their safety. Um, the idea that this is not just our problem, it's a problem everywhere, I think minimizes the issue. I think that if you look at Oregon State, um, where I work with President Ed Ray, he does not do that. He does not say, everyone's going through this, so we are too, so that somehow makes it okay. Um, he has taken on the issue head on. He has said, yes, we have a problem. Um, it's not okay, and we need to implement things now. We don't need to do a study. We know it's happened. We know it's happening. There are plenty of studies that tell us that rape happens on campus, that it's happening to one in five women. The White House has already conducted a study. We don't need, to, we don't need more studies. Um, and to do something. Um, so it's frustrating to me that that is the response. Um, and the idea that they're saying that students are not referred to the Honor Code office um, is also frustrating because we have victims victims who are coming forward and saying, you know, this is what happened to me, so we're discrediting them too. Uh, the idea that the university cannot comment, that they are hiding behind FERPA, yes, some of that is true, um, but when I came forward with my story, President Ed Ray immediately issued an apology on behalf of the school. Um, he did not talk about details of my case, but he validated me. He took accountability and said, I'm sorry for what happened to you. It's not okay. We can do better. We must do better. And we will implement things on this campus to make sure that this doesn't happen again. So I just feel like, you know, it's just a big PR thing from, from the university, and it doesn't really sound like they're really doing anything. And that's really frustrating for me and sad because if you look at Oregon State University, you can do something. The president can step up and can implement procedures to help these students, and they can do it now. They don't have to wait. Um, so yeah, gosh, it uh, just makes me really sad. <laughs> what, what would you, what, what are your suggestions? What, what would you uh, recommend to, uh, to BYU? Well, the first thing they can do is implement an amnesty policy. I mean, the president can do that now. They can just say there's an amnesty policy. If you come forward in good faith and you make a report of a sexual assault, we will not use the honor code against you. Um, they can provide confidential advisors. Um, in Oregon, we have a law that mandates that we have confidential advisors. President Ed Ray has them on his campus, so they're not mandatory reporters. Students can come to these um, advisors um, and counselors, and they can make a report, which is not mandatory, reported to the university. They can be advised of what their rights are, what the university process looks like, what the criminal process looks like, and they can make an informed decision without being afraid of retaliation or the school finding out um, what happened. Um, they can do that. They can open a sexual assault resource center. Um, there's many things that they could do. Um, and, and first and foremost, they could validate that this is happening on their campus, and they could apologize. Hmm. And they could just say that, we believe you, we support you, we want to help you, what can we do? Instead of just saying, well, we don't think this happens on our campus, uh, but we'll look into it and we'll do a study. 
I'd like to kind of situate where you think campuses are in general. So we've been talking about Brigham Young University, Oregon State. I think you would certainly hold forward as a good example, right? Where where do you think most where do you think most campuses yeah. are on this? Yes, absolutely. You know, and when I, the Huffington Post uh, did a story on myself and Oregon State University and President Ed Ray, and to the reporter's knowledge, we were the only university that really was taking this issue head on. Um, they really had not heard any good stories of good outcomes, you know, around this issue. So I really do hold up Oregon State University as an example of how you can deal with sexual assault on your campus and how you can deal with victims and faculty and create an environment of, of belief and support and action and not just these PR campaigns of we take this issue seriously. We hear that over and over and over again. We take this issue seriously. But then what are you doing? It's not okay to say that, well, it's happening everywhere, so it's happening here. It's not okay. It's your university. It's your campus. These are your students. You're in charge of their safety, and you can make change autonomously on your campus. And the fact that Oregon State has done it tells me that everyone else can do it too. And there's no bar- <clears throat> there's no barriers to doing it. You just have to do it, and you have to face this issue, and you have to take it on, and you have to stop worrying about reputation, and you have to stop worrying about, uh, you know, what it's going to look like. Because, quite frankly, President Ed Ray is not worried about what the reputation of the school looks like um, if they take on this issue. And, you know, the school hasn't gone bankrupt. Enrollment hasn't gone down. If anything, people feel safe on that campus, and staff morale, student morale, everything is up. So we, we just we have to change the conversation, and we have to change the attitude on these campuses. Now, in your case, Oregon State, you have a president who, uh, of course, by virtue of being president of the university, can, you know, can, uh, can have a big effect changing culture. He can uh, do a lot of things. Uh, what would you say institutionally can can it should be done in uh, I guess in general on campuses? Yeah, well, I think you know it's interesting that I think there's a phenomenon when you look at campuses everywhere that we have. I, you know, there's this like top down, bottom up theory, and on the bottom we have advocates, we have counselors, we have students, we have organizations that are all really wanting to fix this problem and are really working on this problem. But we don't have the top-down. We don't have the buy-in from the upper administration and, and the presidents. And so what you see at Oregon State University is we have a top-down, bottom-up. And when the, top, when the top comes down and the bottom comes up and they meet in the middle, that is where you see true change happen. And the first thing we need to do is we need to get the presidents to buy into this issue. We have to get them on board and we have to get them to stop avoiding this issue. Um, We have to empower them to use their authority and their power as the administrators to make changes on these campuses. Um, And we got to start all of us working together. That's the only way we're going to change this. I'd like to uh, preface this question by by, uh, noting that you uh, spoke, I think, recently uh, to a conference on healthy masculinity and so if we have, and this, is, this is rattles through my brain every time we talk about this, so one in four, one in five young women will be sexually assaulted uh, during their college career. Um, it's, 
we have to talk to men, don't we? The men, <laughs> men are perpetrating <laughs> yeah. this. What, yeah, so absolutely. what do you what do you um, say to men? Yeah, ninety ninety percent of all sexual assault is carried out by men. Um, that's not to say ninety eight percent of men rape or commit sexual assault. Is ninety eight percent of all of these assaults are are taken out by men um, against women and men. So, to me, I believe this begins with the way we socialize our men. So we're socializing our boys to not cry, don't have feelings, suck it up, be a man. Um, we're socializing them to not be like a girl. You run like a girl, you throw like a girl. Um, so basically we're teaching our boys to be non-human. You can't have emotions. And we're also teaching them that their worth and their value is in how, how many women they can have sex with. You know, what is, what is our conquest? We're, we're teaching men that women are objects and property and that they need to be dominant and they need to dominate. So we're sending all these messages to our boys at a very, very young age. Um, and we're also teaching our girls that this is how men are and that this is okay. So if the little boy on the playground hits you, it's because he likes you. So we're already conditioning our women to accept that abuse is love. Um, and we're socializing our boys to think that dominance over women is what a man is. So we have to de deconstruct these ideas. We have to start with our children younger because, quite frankly, once they're in college, for the most part, if you have a serial perpetrator, it's too late. You're probably not going to get to them at college. We have to start this discussion when they're younger. Um, consent education in high school is very important and we we have to start talking about healthy masculinity and we have to start talking about the way that we're socializing our boys and i believe that it really is at the root of this issue what would you say to parents i you know if, if, if i had a daughter going to campus today I'd, I'd be tempted to go with her and you know <laughs> and <laughs> yeah be her and her and me in the yeah. dorm or whatever it is but uh uh it, it's one in four one in five that's that's a scary statistic yeah, it's scary, <clears throat> and it's difficult. <clears throat> Excuse me, so I'm getting over cold. Um, and it's difficult because you don't want to... You don't want to put the onus on your daughter. You know, if you have a daughter going to camp to college, you don't want to say, like, you know, don't dress a certain way and don't go to a party and don't drink and check your drink for drugs and always go with your friend. Um, because then, in a way, we're kind of saying to her, if something happens to you, it's your fault because you didn't do all the things that I told you to do. Um, so I think the most important thing we need to talk to our daughters about is we need to, and our sons, because men are raped and sexually assaulted also, is we need to have open, honest discussions about these, these things that happen. And we need to make sure that they know that no matter what, this is not their fault and that we believe them, and God forbid, should something happen, don't, stay, don't say stay silent. Speak to someone. Um, even if you don't report it, find someone you trust, talk to them, work through it. Um, we have to make sure that we're not a victim blaming, and we have to make sure that these victims understand that there's support, because unfortunately, culture is still shifting. We have a long way to go. And we're going to still see more and more victims that are mistreated. And we have to start working against the victim blaming because 
the first thing you do when you're sexually assaulted is you blame yourself. And then when you turn to society, they blame you too. And all that does is validate the self-blame. And it just becomes a disaster. Um, and unfortunately, I think we're going to keep on seeing this until we start shifting culture more. It's going to take time. We have a caller uh, who has uh, called us at 1-800-826-1495. Uh, Jennifer joins us. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Go ahead. Good. Okay. Yeah, it's a small world. Um, I went to Oregon State before I joined the church, and I was raped there. And the reason I didn't report it is for the, all the... I mean, I'm just trying to say this has been going on for decades. It was in the 70s, and I didn't report it because I just knew that somehow, you know, it would be, it would be a male responder because all the police officers were male. Okay, and I just knew that they would figure out some way for it to be my fault. And it was, in fact, an athlete, okay, and and an athlete from a different country. And who knows, maybe they have immunity. I don't know what. But, but it takes years and years and years to recover from this, you know. But anyway, I eventually ended up joining the church, and I went to BYU, and I had this incident where this guy... Um, uh, came into our, I was in a house full of girls, and this guy came in with a knife, and and I uh, I could see that he was, you know, he had a bad thing in mind. But anyway, they they did investigate this. Uh, it was the police department. It wasn't the BYU people. But anyway, it turned out he was just a really insecure mess, and felt powerless. And if we could figure out what. Plus, it's upsetting that we had a nine-year-old girl out here in Vernal raped by four men. And it's like, good grief, you guys. You know, when is this? It's so frustrating. It should be getting better, and it's not getting better. It may even be getting worse. But I'm really glad this lady is in Corvallis (laughs) doing this because that's one of my great memories of Corvallis is being assaulted. But um, what I don't get is how come we can't have men... Uh, sit down with men and say, this isn't cool, this isn't okay. But I don't really see much of that happening at all, and it's very frustrating. So that's it. That's all I have. Thanks. Thanks, Jennifer. Uh, uh, Sorry for your experiences there, and uh, thanks for sharing. Uh, What do you say, uh, Brenda? Yeah, well, first I just want to say that I'm I'm sorry for what happened to you also, and um, I I just, I feel for you and I understand and I believe you and I just want you to know that you're not alone. Um, and it is frustrating. Uh, when I first came forward with my story um, and kind of become, you know, kind of a public figure on this issue, I thought, you know, what can I do? And the first thing I thought of was, well, maybe I could start a nonprofit um, to help victims. And so I got online and I and I just saw, you know, organization after organization that are helping victims and I thought you know what are the men doing what are we doing about men and there's very few um, but there are some there's a national organization called the call to men and they are they are working on this issue of healthy masculinity and you know how can we uh, raise our boys differently and how can we get them involved in the movement um, because the the truth is is ten percent of the male population they're committing these crimes um, so it's like, you know, what's the other 90% doing? And how can we empower the other 90% to start speaking up? 
and how can we get them engaged so that the 90% can now overpower the 10%. You know, the 90% can be louder than the 10%. And I hope that as we further this discussion and victims are feeling empowered to speak and more people are coming forward and as we see the movement progress that we would get more men involved and that we would have more agencies and organizations working on this issue because men are really at the root of of the issue and I don't say that as an indi- as, as an indictment I just would like to invite them to stand alongside women and address this issue because I I know that together we can we can we can solve this I want to get a couple of uh, comments here before we uh, close. Uh, this is the first comments come into upraxis at gmail.com. <clears throat> uh, this commenter says, Much of the conversation seems to subliminally defend the honor code by establishing the discussion within the parameters of the honor code. In other words, it seems like the narrative is such that the problem is not the honor code itself, rather there was a crack, a dysfunction in the system. I wonder, though, if a genuine criticism of the honor code's intrinsic dynamics is getting lost in the discussion. Do the victims, as well as justifiably scared women at BYU in general, usually defend the honor code, or do they feel that uh, the last few weeks call uh, into question the validity of the honor code as such? The speakers at UPR talked about cultural discourses, which buttresses sexual violence is one of those the honor code itself to what extent uh, do the last few weeks force us to reconcile with issues of mixing religious law into secular education and civil law and the vicissitudes which inevitably uh, emerge Uh, by the way when i say the conversation i don't mean your upr specific points but rather the dialogue that has emerged across mormonism in the last few weeks so that is from an anonymous uh, commenter i don't know if you have any comment on that brenda tracy Yeah, I do, actually. Um, I think there's nothing wrong with having an honor code. I think that every student that goes to BYU probably is made aware of what the honor code is um, and believes in, you know, those ideas. So I I don't see anything wrong with having an honor code. I think many schools have honor codes. I think the problem comes in that when we're talking about a crime that's committed, that we're attaching the honor code onto that somehow. So the honor code itself is not the problem. The problem is when we're inserting the honor code into an issue of a crime being committed and using it against the victim. So I think that have an honor code, I think that's great, but when you have a victim of a crime come forward, do not re-victimize them by using the honor code against them. Um, so there's just there has to be a separation in that sense in, in those situations. Here's another comment that's come in. Uh, I think we'll have this be the last uh, comment, and we'll have uh, Brent Tracy give some final words. Uh, this person says, My concern, mind you, I'm not defending any university or private institution, but students in, are informed of and committed to the honor code long before they ever arrive on campus. And I understand that students who are being uh, dismissed are not being dismissed for the assault, but rather for breaking the code. And as a private institution, aren't they allowed to do that? That's uh, the comment there. Well, I, I think the problem is that if you're speaking in the sense of, you know, sexual activity in general, and you're being dismissed, um, the victim did not engage in that. So they did not violate the honor code. It's the perpetrator who violated the honor code. Um, And I think also that in cases of, you know, maybe there's drinking, maybe somebody was drugged. I know that I was drugged against my will, um, so I didn't violate anything the perpetrator did. So the idea that we're punishing the victims is we're, we're blaming them for the assault that has happened to them and it's just not it's not fair and it's not okay
So you again, you would you would support an immunity cause per, per scout's court absolutely. reports. Absolutely, in in cases of crimes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, one hundred percent. So just about a minute left. What what would you say finally at the end uh, of the discussion here, Brenda Tracy? Um, I would just like to talk to survivors and victims, and I would just like to say that you know it's not your fault. You are not alone. Um, I believe you. There's many of us that believe you. And I'm sorry for what has happened to you. And I'm sorry if you've been mistreated by your institution and your college. Um, I applaud you for coming forward, understanding what the risks could be. I applaud you for your strength and your courage to speak out and fight against a broken system. And I will continue to do my part to make sure that we help change this issue. Brenda Tracy is a sexual violence prevention consultant at Oregon State University. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And we've uh, early in the program, we talked with uh, Carrie Jenkins, spokesperson for Brigham Young University, and Alana Kindness, executive director of Utah Coalition Against Sexual Assault. You can keep this conversation going by emailing us to upraxis at gmail.com. You can also find this program at upr.org. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And support for the Utah StoryCorps project is made possible by our members and Uinta Basin Healthcare in Roosevelt. Founded in 1944, celebrating over 70 years of service, offering hospital, clinical, and pharmacy services. Details at ubh.org. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.